But in Angola, you've got lots of the, the deserty bits are essentially sand dunes, and they're on a scale to, to just see. I mean, they're enormous. You're listening to the Rotary Wing Show, a show for helicopter aircrew by helicopter aircrew. Each episode, we travel the world to hear from the people that fly and support helicopters to learn a little bit more about their stories and pick up some tips along the way. If you want to catch up on past shows or see photos from the interviews, head over to rotarywingshow.com. You can also subscribe on iTunes. Just search for Rotary Wing Show and get future episodes direct to your phone. I'm your host, Mick Cullen. Welcome back to the Rotary Wing Show from wherever your corner of the world is as we get back into some more stories from the helicopter industry. Cyclone Debbie came through about two weeks ago along the uh, mid-coast of Queensland here in Australia. The, the eye of the cyclone and storm passed pretty close to the airfield on Hamilton Island and the, the spessy weather report or the forecast on the day there that I've got here says that it was the wind was 103 knots, gusting to 125 knots. And that's the highest I've seen the wind on a TAF ever. And so you have to have a think back for yourself. So what's, what's the record that you can remember that you've ever seen on the TAF? So it was 103 knots, gusting 125 there as the storm went past on Hamilton Island. It's uh, school holidays here at the moment, so I've been quite busy the last two weeks keeping the, the kids uh, entertained and out on different activities. So today we actually went into Brisbane City to the museum and uh, I thought I'd leave about 2.30 early to, to get back home here on the north side of the city to, to uh, Redcliffe. But I didn't actually factor in that tomorrow is, is Good Friday and obviously long weekend and uh, got caught in the traffic of people packing up and heading for their holidays with uh, caravans and utes and everything loaded up with all their, their camping gear and uh, yeah, definitely stuck there on the highway trying to get back home and uh, we'll probably join the mad rush tomorrow and head away for a couple of days. But uh, that's a, a pretty dodgy segue, I guess, into the interview for today. Because uh, it's with Peter Wilson, he and, and Matthew, he's an offsider, have headed out by the time this goes to air on their round-the-world trip, starting from the UK and heading east. So they're currently on a rest day in uh, Cairo, as I record this. And when I spoke to Peter, he was just a, a few days before departing the UK on the trip. So you can imagine he had plenty on his plate in terms of getting last-minute jobs all sorted and squared away. So I'm guessing by the time you hear this that uh, they'll be somewhere near Pakistan and there, there is a live tracker on their, their website so you can follow their progress and see where they are up to in, the, in their trip and how they're going. And I'll share all the website addresses at the end of the show and you can find them along with photos on the blog post for this episode at rotarywingshow.com. This Round the World flight is a part of a bigger project that Peter is involved in. So this is the second of three flights. So the first one Peter did solo last year in 2016, which was a, a flight from the UK down around Africa and then back home. And the final flight will be a, a future flight around South America. The flights are a fundraiser for a number of charities and as a vehicle to bring attention to sustainable development. I'm the president of our local Rotary Club here in Redcliffe, just north of Brisbane, this year. And interestingly enough, we just had a guest speaker this week who broke the, the record for sailing around Australia. And he had a similar focus on using the trip to highlight the damage that plastics cause to marine life. You might remember Dick Smith is one of the past guests we've interviewed here about 
his around the world flights, and he's got a similar passion for sustainable development and the environment as well. So there must be something special about you know, seeing large parts of the globe that bring home just how connected we all are, and especially doing this podcast and getting feedback from people, uh, from yourself, you know, from all around the world uh, who, who tune in. It's, it's quite amazing how small the world is. And I guess especially as helicopter pilots or crew, you know, we had that front row seats to check out some of the, the best places on Earth. Now, a fair question you might ask is, you know, what about the fuel and the emissions that you rack up in a helicopter flight uh, doing these sorts of trips around the world in terms of, you know, trying to then talk about sustainability? And I don't think we actually covered it in the interview, but Peter talks about it on the website. And he's worked out that the Africa flight was the equivalent of 38 tonnes of CO2. And what he's done is basically gone through and different projects and sustainable developments to actually offset that cost. And I'm assuming he'll do that on this trip as well. So without further ado, let's uh, cut across and introduce you to Peter. Right, Peter Wilson, welcome to the Rotary Wing Show. Well, thank you for having me. <laughs> hey, we're going to chat about um, one adventure that you're very shortly about to launch on, but also uh, what you've previously done. So can you tell folks listening how many days until you launch on your round-the-world trip? We go on the round-the-world trip this Saturday, subject to weather, 9 o'clock local. And so whatever today is, Wednesday, we've got Thursday, Friday, only two more days to go. It's, it's frantic. So we'll talk about some of your to-do list as we, as we get there and definitely about the, the trip that you're doing and, and all the things about it. But this isn't your first large, long-range trip. So how did you get involved in, in helicopter flying for starters and then with uh, these big trips that you're doing? Well, the action involvement with helicopters goes right back to when I was a conscripted soldier. About 18 years old, I was carried around and in those days couldn't afford clearly to fly and had no idea that I would eventually. And that at the age of about 40, 42, much later in life, I was able to do a private pilot's license um, with, with a scheme that was organized in the United Kingdom for people changing their careers. And I was one of the few that got as far as a commercial license and an instructor's license. And I liked it. You know, the first trial flight had me hooked. And quickly I went through those badges and then became a, a, really a weekend instructor, devoting one day a weekend literally for the last sort of 15 years. And about 1994, I took off and flew around the United Kingdom, which was a big deal then, but by comparison with some of the things I'm doing now, is, is not very far. It was 22 yeah. hours and took me about four days. And I've since done a few trips, you know, around Ireland um, and then into Europe. And in 2015, when I'd reached the point where I was selling my businesses and was lucky enough to have financial means to join buying programs, and much more time, because it's a time issue, really. I joined a group of helicopters, and six of us flew to Moscow, which was a private flight, which was the first private uninvited flight to fly into Moscow. Fantastic. And that was, you know, that was fabulous. And again, it was with other pilots, and you know what it's like when you sit down around 
a table in the evening and you get a chance to talk with people who like similar things to you, <clears throat> it was fun. And we met a load of Russians in, not surprisingly, in um, Moscow, but particularly we met some of the long-range pilots. And that really stimulated my ideas that I, I could, when I had the time, plan something big. So did you, your, we, did you have your own helicopter then, Peter? No, and I still don't have my own helicopter now. I rent it. Right. Yep. Uh, I've never owned a helicopter. Ne- never owned a helicopter. Okay. All right. So you've done a, a trip into into Russia with some folks there, and okay, and then we jump now. So obviously you've done a, a trip all the way around Africa, and there was a, a bit of an environmental message to that as well. So can you just go into that? Yes, I can. Well. Having decided to do some big flying trips, and a couple of friends of mine in other ways have done things on their bicycles. One of my friends rode around the world, set the world record for riding around the world on a bicycle, and indeed has just announced uh, an 80-day ride around the world challenge. I thought there are three big journeys. One's around the world, one's around Africa, which takes you up and down, and the other one's around Latin America. And in discussing that, it was clear that to just do the flying feat, which of itself is a, is a fascinating logistical challenge and flying challenge, and you see things with your eyes that you would never really think you would, amazing. I talked to people about could it be used for charity? And in doing that, met people who were interested in sustainable development, the planet, and so on, and became friends with a large number of people who do that kind of thing. And to, together we've put, put a program which is three journeys around raising awareness of living within Earth's means, to put it simply, and then fundraising, and in particular we fundraise to save the children and a charity called Motivation, as well as raising the profiles of other charities whom we go and uh, visit en route. And that together brought both the flying and the project is now actually a project of presenting what I've seen to different audiences. And as we've developed that argument for the round the world, we've got some supporters, sponsors who are helping to raise awareness in the school systems as well. And I, I will eventually be able to do more of that as, I, as it gets more well known. And I have the time to go out and say, look, this is what I've done. Can I come and talk to you? And are you interested in following the third journey? Fantastic. And I've seen a couple of shots of the, the cockpit for the Africa trip. And you obviously have, you know, several Go, you know, I'm assuming it's like a, a GoPro camera and you, you're creating a lot of media material as you go around. So I'm guessing that'll be the similar setup for the for this next trip? Yes. We have two sponsored by Garmin and they are not GoPros. They're Garmin Verbs, which... Are a, I was going to say they're a similar camera and, and they're very good for what we're doing and we will have a similar setup in the cockpit except on the round the world there are two pilots I did Africa solo it was intended to be two pilots but in the end the, the, first, the other pilot who was going to come with me had to drop out too close to being able for me to be able to do anything about it but when you see the pictures of what's in the cockpit, I have two Garmin's, I have a Sony camera, and I, I, most of the pictures, ironically, are taken one-handed with an iPhone 6. Yeah. And those, both the selfies, turning it, and, you know, 
using it outside the cockpit, good enough camera and easy enough to use and light enough to carry all that equipment. All right, well, let's geek out. Obviously, people who are listening to this, uh, you know, pretty much either going to be in the helicopter industry or, or pilots or, you know, aircrewmen themselves. So let's talk about the Africa trip. We haven't mentioned yet what you actually uh, flew in. But, yeah, let's go through the aircraft and then, yeah, like the nitty-gritty things like, you know, how did you plan your fuel stops and how did you organise maps and things like that. So let's start off with the aircraft. So it's uh, uh, the photos. It looks like an R66. Yes, it is indeed. I'd flown 44s and 22s a lot for the training. And when the R66 came out, certainly the Russians were flying them when they were doing their round-the-world records. And the R66 can carry more than its own weight when it's fully loaded. So it's, it's one of the few machines that can do that. And some of the other ones that can do that are military things like the Chinook. And so this is a tiny, relatively, and relatively speaking, a practical and inexpensive machine. So we, ch- we chose the R66 and then went to find a place that would be silly enough to rent it to us while we did these expeditions. With fuel and stuff like that, organizing the route, we've teamed up with an organization called GACE, which is General Aviation Support Egypt, which is a volunteer organization that helps ferry flights and people, private pilots, doing long-range missions. And they give us a lot of support to handle helping us team the route planning before we go, making sure that we've got the right ranges, and then when we go, which we may talk about later, we have in cockpit communications capabilities with them and they will book hotels for us as we approach and know we're going to actually land at a destination and so on. So, Well, let's talk about group planning then. So for the first Africa trip, you're obviously out of the UK. How can you talk people through the route then that you, that you took for Africa? Yeah, the... The idea was to get to the tip of Africa, obviously starting from London. And there are several routes you could take to get through the European bit to be ready to launch into Africa. And at the time we were planning, there was Ebola in West Africa. And although it was under control by then, we still couldn't be sure that countries would allow us just to skip between the various countries and then enter and leave. And there were all sorts of there was uncertainty about just being able to fly across. Perhaps in hindsight, I could have. So I would love to have gone around the West African coast, but we made a decision just to be practical and go from the top of Algeria, basically straight across the Sahara, which took us through Algeria and Niger and then Nigeria. And then we were going to try and follow the coast down. In conjunction with physically planning a route like that, I was looking at places to visit, people to visit. And in doing that, some spots, opportunities developed that meant, okay, so we're going to have to fly inland to meet those people, which is great. So we'll take advantage of seeing the Okavango, for example, in Botswana. And through a, a couple of iterations, we ended up with a route to land in specific places, one to get service and meet people, and to essentially observe the round Africa and we exited Africa at Cairo. Cairo is where Gase are based. So when we got to Cairo, when I got to Cairo, we, we planned, I was there for three days, we planned around the world route in the first pass to say, this is something that's possible. Now go away and see if you can find 
people to visit, and then we'll make route adjustments. So that's the route. It's an iterative process. It's a big spreadsheet. And once we've got the route, we then look at altitudes, see whether that's possible uh, or sensible, because there are issues to do with range as well as altitude. You don't want to be fully loaded at high altitude and so on. And we look at cost, because we might say we're going here, but actually there's an airport that is much less costly. Some of these international airports are extremely expensive by comparison. And that those final adjustments make make the whole route make sense. And then we then we try and fly it <laughs> and do whatever changes we have to once we're flying. Well, talk to us about flying over the Sahara Desert. I mean, you know, it's going to be, yeah, especially low level in a helicopter, there's not going to be too many people who are doing that. So what does that sort of, you know, look like? And, how, you know, are you down at, uh, you know, down low level? Are you high? How do you sort of do that things? Well, countries like Algeria and parts of Niger and certainly Egypt and parts of Sudan, and I say parts of those countries because Niger and Sudan respect, if you're, if you're going into Algeria or, or Egypt, that you need to fly at the heights they make you fly at. So Algeria and Egypt wanted me to fly in the directions I was flying at flight level 075 coming south through Algeria and flight level 085 going north through Egypt, which is a long way up in a helicopter especially when, for example, over the Eastern Mediterranean, sea level is sea level. So you're 8,500 yeah. feet rather shouting above. And although the horizon is a lovely color of sea blue and sky blue on the day, it's still a long way from what I'm used to. I'm, I'm used to, in the UK, we fly around not, not below 500 feet to observe the 500-foot rule, but you are much closer to the ground and the perspective of flying is, is one where you are interacting with the features around you so it was it was fascinating one of the positives of flying high in the sahara though is instead of seeing 42 degrees on the ground you see 26 degrees it's cool and i don't have air conditioning in the helicopter so that was good on your website there's a one of the captions for the photos there you're talking about a 500 foot sand dunes yes they the, the different kinds of sand that i've come to know now the desert, Sahara Desert was one thing, and the features were amazing, the different features. It's not just sand. There are sort of rocky features, and there are lots of little green bits here and there with the oases. But the 500 feet high sand dunes, getting into Namibia, Namibia is a desert, and the south of Angola was very arid at the time of year I went. But in Angola, you've got lots of the, the deserty bits are essentially sand dunes, and they're on a scale to, to just see. I mean, they're enormous. Flying along the coast and on the left-hand side is literally a sand dune. I'm flying at 500 feet, and I am just level with the top of the sand dune. And the sand dunes stretch back for miles as you fly down the coast. And there's a place called Sossius Flay, which is very famous. Those are the lovely, dark, rich-colored sand dunes there. The ground level is about 1,500 feet there, and the sand dunes are 3,200. 3, so they're 1,500 feet high, and they're just Yikes. perfectly formed sand dunes. You can just see people walking up them as they are touristing around, and it's awesome scale, lovely stuff to see. And then, of course, we talked about dust. Western, West Africa, East Africa, um, uh, sorry, is, is dusty. It's not a desert, but there's also dust and sand there. 
the helicopter got more dusty in Tanzania, Kenya, and those places than it did flying through the Sahara. In my experience, the dust, the sand in the Sahara is sand as opposed to dust. Yeah, okay. And in terms of, you know, search and rescue and your communications and things like that, you know, as you went along, were you in constant contact or were there parts there where, you know, you would have been waiting for someone to come find you? <laughs> yep. You, we, with the best will in the world, we plan. Obviously, we've got multi-layers here. You do your flight plan and the authorities know you're going from A to B. And in places like Algeria, but there are large chunks of Africa and now that we're planning around the world, around the world where VHF radio just doesn't work, it gives you 20 to 40 miles if you're lucky. We don't have HF. What we had was satellite phones, Iridium satellite phones. And although we could talk to people, not everybody else would have the capability to, to take the phone. When we fly around the world, we, it's obligatory to have satellite phones for the Russian section, for example. However, what we did have constant communications for, which produce the track that you see, we have a DeLorme Iridium device that is giving us an update to a map every two minutes. And we can also, it's a bit like Facebook Messenger, but it's the DeLorme's equivalent. You can pair your iPad or your phone. I had my iPad paired to the device and I can Facebook message or DeLorme message Gase. So apart from the fact I'm a single pilot on the Africa trip and I'm flying the, the helicopter with, my, with a cyclic stick in my left hand yeah. instead of the right hand and then I'm typing with, typing with my right. Apart from that problem, I could communicate. And so I would write short messages and perhaps get slightly longer messages back from Gase. And that's how we would organize hotels, anticipating. I could ask them for weather ahead when I was diverting. Because times we had to take action. So I was in constant contact, but it wasn't as if I could press a button and talk to somebody easily. It was usually by text or the equivalent of a, a messaging system. But it's a good system, and we're going to use it for uh, around the world. And GACE monitor all the flights. I don't take off until I've got positive comms. All right, I guess we should tell people too. So people can actually uh, log on and, and follow your progress with the same system. So it's updating a, a map on the website and uh, that's going to work for, for this next trip? Yes, it will do. And if you log on to on the, on the website, it's at the bottom in the footer, it gives you a little thing you can click on. And that URL that you could grab once you've clicked on it, you can keep and use. The current map is off the Africa trip because I've left it there, but we will restart the date and then we will have a progressive track for the whole round the world. And I'll plug the website again and be a link on the website on, on the Rotary Wing Show show notes for this episode, but it's obviously three journeys round and it's three spelt out, so T-H-R-E-E-journeysround.com and I'll put links there on Facebook too so you can go check that out and follow Peter's trip. But Peter, just on Africa again, and then we'll we'll head off into the current trip that you're coming up in a couple of days. But I don't know what was the, probably like a couple of things here, like you know the scariest moment on the trip. You know what did you have in the actual cockpit with you in terms of if you had to spend the night, you know, away and you know land in the middle of nowhere. And uh, you know, I've occasionally before I've had to to stop and take a a quick uh, leak break and things like that. Was there any memorable spots where you had to 
put down and and uh, answer nature's call? The a lot in there, and we just talk about the Africa trip. I'd planned. I have a tent, and I had a grab bag with enough food. Uh, I can't remember how many calories we had, but more importantly, water. I carried ten liters and sometimes eleven liters of water when I was in the hot arid areas. There were discussions about how much you were obliged to carry versus how much you need. We're going to carry less when we go around the world, except for where we go through the hot areas where we will we will swap oil for water and then we'll go back to carrying oil again. But I, I had all the usual things. I could light a fire like a, boy, a good Boy Scout could do. And I had a tent and I had a sleeping bag, which I never had to use. I perhaps prepared for the worst and then it, it never happened. I did have some moments that I would say I should try not to repeat. Although, was I scared? It's a funny old thing, um, fear. But going from Taman Raset, which is the city, the last city that I left in Algeria, and flying into Niger, which is the next country, to a place called Agadez, I was at 7,500 feet, or flight and I could see what looked like haze developing, and there is always haze, and they put it on the, the Met um, stuff that you get. And all of a sudden, I couldn't see above me, below me, left or right. And I've got a picture of that taken as a selfie. And indeed, a, one of the cameras ran all the way through that because I have a time-lapse camera running for every journey we make. And when I look at the time-lapse camera, it, it is just impossible to see anything. And I flew which was as close to IFR as you could have to fly for about 90 minutes. I'm not an IFR qualified pilot, and the helicopter doesn't have anything special in it. Yeah. So that was that was 90 minutes, wasn't it? Not nine minutes. Yeah, that was that was 90 minutes. <laughs> That's a long and when you time. look at the, if you increase, if you, I know, if you increase the resolution, if you, if you go and look at Taman Rasset to Agadez on the actual map, you can see it wasn't the straightest flying. <laughs> Even though I was paying attention, I would like to repeat that and. You know, people say to me, well, why did you take off? Well, it, the weather report was fine. And the, albeit two points so far apart, and there's no weather report in between, really. Uh, and it was flat country, so it wasn't as if there were lots of mountains around, things like that. There were, there were all the things you could possibly have done to make it safe, but it wasn't pleasant and I uh, wouldn't try and do it again. And, it, you know, it's the desert equivalent of flying in poor whiteout conditions. It wasn't great, yeah. and I don't recommend it. And that, you know, was I frightened? I, I, I thought I was going to die, <laughs> but I didn't. And the, and the helicopter, you know, we got the helicopter was dusty when we got to the other end, and it was washed. So that was probably the worst moment of the trip, in hindsight. Uh, I did have to land for bad weather uh, when I was trying to get into Cape Town, and I there's lots of mountains around there, and I ended up being scrunched in between hills on both sides, and then eventually a hill. I'd gone down the wrong valley, and weather just closed in, and I couldn't see anything, so I had to wait about an hour before recovering my steps and finding the right valley. And then, of course, Cape Town was nice and sunny when I got there about 40 minutes later. So <laughs> I, did a few, I did a few things like that. I never had to stop for natural breaks, and I don't know whether that's just me. I always made sure I had um, relieved myself 
as close to the departure as I could, and I managed what I drank. We used concentrated hydration fluids rather than lots and lots of water, and it seemed to work. Okay. Oh, well, let's quickly, we'll finish up then with, uh, obviously, the next big trip coming up. And there's probably, you know, in terms of practice, flying around Africa is probably, you know, not bad practice for what you're about to do do next. Was there a couple of other things that you sort of learnt on the way around Africa that you're going to take into the planning and into how you're going to fly this next uh, around the world leg? There were, I mean, there's lots and lots of little things, I think, that we've been implementing the configuration of the aircraft in terms of what's weight, what weights in it is different because I have two pilots and we now have half the clothing allowance, as it were. But for example, the sponsor who's supplying the clothes, we've gone to very clever odor eating, dries in a flash in a blur, easy to wash type clothing. And the epaulets that are on those allow you to put your pilot badges on. So we've really streamlined everything that's in the helicopter. From a communications point of view, we have plumbed in the Iridium satellite phone. We're using an iGo system rather than a separate satellite phone, which means we've essentially got Wi-Fi in the helicopter and five devices can, can use and talk to the external world. We're going to use the Iridium tracker again because that works. And we've set up more than one of those for security and redundancy. From a flying point of view, we, we know that flying through the International Tropical Convergence Zone is also a challenge. That was one of the challenges in Africa. And so in planning the route, we've just been more generous in how long it takes us to go from A to B each day. We've been less ambitious about how much we fly in a day when we're going through those areas so that we can stay on track. And I've tried to decouple chunks of the route by putting five days stops in at three three points so that I don't have to tell everybody I'm late <laughs> until I really am late for that leg. Yeah, there's a bit of a, a buffer in there. Signif- the most significant addition to the helicopter, we've added uh, equipment to the helicopter, so it now has a heated pitot tube for the cold. We expect to see minus 20 in some of the cold areas. And I've managed to gain sponsorship for a piece of equipment, which I think is excellent, which is the Helisas augment stabilization system and autopilot so we've got a two-axis autopilot in there now that would have been brilliant as a single pilot in africa because actually the ship you know subject to due care and attention you take your hands off the cyclic stick and she flies she can hover like that too now that allows you to blow your nose or not that i have maps but fold a map or do something with your electronics or take a take a better picture two pilots will make a difference as well Oh, yeah, just having someone to, to share the, the trip with and, and things like that, especially for some of the, I imagine the overwater legs are going to be, you know, I guess Mediterranean wasn't too bad, but be some significant overwater legs in this next one. Yeah, we've got, my longest overwater leg was about 290 nautical over the eastern Mediterranean. And, and although there were a couple of water legs, I had to go to Saint Tome to get around Gabon because they wouldn't let me through which was a bit of a, a pain. But the around the world has eight significant water legs, I think, from last count. And again, we've got suits for that. We've gone and done all the offshore dunking courses. We've gone and done the survival at sea courses with the Royal Yacht Club. And we've got 
beacons, more beacons now than we that I took with me when I flew around Africa. So we, I always wear a PLB full stop when I'm flying now, and I never fly without a PLB. The helicopter obviously has its ELT, which goes off if you dump it on the ground or you crash, the shock sets it off. But we have stuff for the water and for the life raft. And we've reconfigured our grab bags to have the right kind of kit for survival at sea, not just survival in desert. So the, the round the world has some, some significant water legs. We need to pray to that God of single engine machines. Uh, the single engine machine continues to work over the water leg. That's it. And uh, the route is slightly different to a couple of the other people I've seen who have flown around the world. So you're basically, it, it doesn't look like you're going much into Russia or China at all. You're sort of coming down through, do you come down as far as Indonesia? Yes, we do come down as far as Indonesia. I'm just going to bring my map while I'm talking to you. We don't, we can't go into China. It's just not a place where general aviation is going to work. And I know some people can and have flown there, but we come down, once we leave Bangladesh, Dakar, we essentially head south through Myanmar, Malaysia, and into Indonesia or Western Indonesia, Sumatra, which is where we hit one of our antipodes. And then we start heading east into, we're going to a place called Mulu, which is a lovely biodiverse place. It's, it's near Borneo, which people perhaps would know, but it's not Borneo, it's Sarawak. And then we're starting to head up through the Philippines and island hop to, across the islands to the east of Taiwan and then into the Indian chain, a uh, Japanese chain of islands and then through Japan and then, then up into the Russian mainland. And we're getting assistance from the Russian CAA and another organization that does handling in Russia, trying to raise the profile of general aviation in Russia. And these people I met when I flew there in 2015. And so we fly all the way up Russia into a place called Providenia, which some might know, and then across into Alaska, Nome. And then we come down the, the western side of the Americas into Central America and then Colombia and Latin America, which is our second antipode. So this is an antipodal circumnavigation, which is not a normal aviation circumnavigation. I might show my ignorance here, but uh, can you just explain that phrase, antipodal? Yeah, and antipodes, if you imagine a a sphere, which the Earth is to all intents and purposes, and you take a rod and it goes through the center of the sphere and then you move the rod around but touch the each end of the rod at the surface of the Earth, you can see that there are places all over the Earth that have a, a, you know, a twin on the other side. And Palembang in Indonesia has an antipode with Neve in Colombia. And from a helicopter's perspective that has limited range as opposed to a boat, which can antipode anywhere in the sea, we're going to go to two towns or cities on opposite ends of the rods through the ah, Earth. Gotcha. Both very near the equator. Yeah. And this is within 40 miles, 40 nautical miles of the end of each of this rod, as you can imagine. Because most aviation circumnavigations are below the Arctic, the, the, the definition is below the Arctic Circle, and to do at least, usually in the Northern Hemisphere, because that's where all the land is, at least the distance of, of one of the tropics. And the tropics is, I don't know, 23,000 nautical or something like that. Well, we're doing 29,000 nautical, and we're going to antipodes. It'll be the first time it's done 
in a single helicopter if we achieve it. Fantastic, Peter. And what are the, a couple of the uh, to-do things you still got on your list before uh, Saturday? <laughs> Great. Um, I'm juggling more balls than I really should be. There's nothing, well, they're all major things that need to be done, but there's nothing that is so crucial the mission would be delayed. I could go and that would be that. But we've got a couple of clamps and I have to replace an aerial on the helicopter, which went US, which doesn't fill one with confidence. That needs to be done tomorrow. So that's the helicopter side. I've got to pull together all the things that the logistics stuff, paperwork stuff, there's the legal stuff, documents that I need. And then there's the, I'm meeting 20 places or 20 people and I can just make sure I've got a reference book nicely bound. I've got all that electronically. And then there's little things like we, we will plan our first or two or three legs. We take our iPads and we, we clean everything off it from all the weather maps. And then we just put in literally the 20, next 20 airports that we're planning to go to. So that we start looking at the weather today, tomorrow, as we head in. And we just get into the groove of always looking in the direction we're going to fly and watching the weather. So it's, it's, we're starting to get into flying mode. And then it's the second trial pack of the helicopter, the final, final, final weight and balance to be sure someone hasn't snuck in a heavier item than they should have. <laughs> <laughs> yep. and, a, and a couple of short flights, that's what we're doing. We're just flying around and a couple of media things. That's it, really. Well, brilliant. Well, I'll let you get back to that. And uh, definitely, look, thank you very much. I know your time's limited at the moment uh, sharing what you're doing. And uh, we'll spread the word. And uh, we'll get a few people following in on the tracker and, and Facebook. And I uh, can't wait to see some of the photos that uh, come out. And, yeah, look amazing. Best of luck for, for Saturday morning as you depart. And uh, for the next, uh, when do you think you'll roughly be home? Well, the plan without delays is 120 days. But and that takes us to the 5th of August. But I know we're going to end up with delays. So I'll be happy if we are returning home to London or London Way by the end of August. All the insurances are lined up for two months after that if we had to stay away. So, yeah, it's four and a half to five months, maybe a bit faster than that if we are lucky with the weather. So... I, th- I thank you for taking an interest in this and, um, you know, perhaps we can talk about it, who knows, <laughs> even en route as we go. That'll be a uh, lot of fun. So, yeah. yeah. Okay, well, we'll follow along and, uh, yeah, absolutely, best of luck and uh, definitely from, from everyone listening, yeah, wishing yourself and uh, the whole team and all the support team, yeah, it'll be uh, fantastic seeing it and, uh, yeah, excellent taking it on. Well done. Thank you very much, Mick. Peter's schedule is crazy, as you can imagine. You know, stepping off on a, a trip like that, the amount of uh, prep and just getting things organised, and I guess you'd be leaving with a, a lot of things unknown as you step off as well. So, you know, I really appreciate Peter being able to take time out to to uh, record that interview in those lead up days. If you want to see where Peter and Matthew are on the trip, when you listen to this, depending on when it goes to air and when you get to it, a couple places you can look. So. The main website, which talks about the overall flights and what Peter's achieving and the charities and has pictures of the Africa flight, is at 3journeysround.com. So 3, the word spelled in full, T-H-R-E-E, journeysround.com. 
and on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash three journeys round. And again, there's obviously links on the show page for this episode on rotarywingshow.com and on the Facebook page. We're going to try and hook up and see if we can get an update with Peter around the halfway mark of the trip and see how he's going and if he's got any stories to tell that uh, he can pass on to, to us and listeners then. While you're on the show website, do pick up a copy of the top 10 helicopter books as recommended by show listeners. Downloading that will also put you on the email list for notifications about new episodes when they go out. A big thank you to you, dear listener, if you are one of the show backers on Patreon. That support really does help to offset some of the the costs of providing the download bandwidth for everyone to to listen to it. It also means a huge amount to me that, you know, one, that you find the interview is interesting enough, but also interesting enough, you know, not just to subscribe, but to be part of the, the gang that makes this possible. I'd love to hear where in the world you are tuning in from and, and what you fly or operate on. You can find the podcast on Facebook or Twitter, or you can hit me up at feedback at rotarywingshow.com. I've been your host, Mick Cullen, and I can't wait to catch you in the next episode.